0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. These are the times that try men's souls. Words first published by the pamphleteer Thomas Paine on December 23, 1776, in his pamphlet *The Crisis*. Uh, Things had not gone real well in the American Revolution recently, that late summer and fall. New York City had fallen to the British and achieved significant victories in the outlying areas. But Payne writes on, The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now Deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. I don't know whether Thomas Paine understood the spiritual significance of his words or not, but heaven has indeed highly rated freedom as God has given the very Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, to purchase it and us from the depths of hell. Crisis is a time that clarifies where we stand. We will be either unwound or, like the Apostle Paul who finds joy and freedom, unbound in freedom. And so we journey through the book of Philippians together. We go to school on and with the Apostle Paul and find ourselves this morning dealing with the subject of stress in crisis. Who are we and how do we find contentment? So would you open up your Bible, if you brought one, or the Pew Bible in front of you to Philippians chapter 4. You'll find that on page 955 in the Pew Bible. Philippians chapter 4. This morning, I read verses 4 through 20. These are the words of Paul. This is the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And keep on doing the things that you have learned and received And heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, And I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. You Philippians, indeed, know that in the early days of the gospel when i left macedonia no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone for even when i was in thessalonica you sent me help for my needs more than once not that i seek the gift but i seek the profit that accumulates to your account i have been paid in full and have more than enough i am fully satisfied now that I have received from the Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. When I was a young boy, uh, one summer, I found myself in the backyard scratching aimlessly in the dirt, delighted to uncover a piece of rusty metal. And I dug it out, and lo and behold, it was a horseshoe. What a find, a lucky find. And I scraped the dirt off it with my thumbnail and turned it over to see if anything was on it. And then I uh, made a mistake. See, I knew that horseshoes were for throwing, and I thought I would try it out, and I gave it a toss because I was lazy, didn't want to go fetch it. My mistake was that I threw it straight up in the air. (laughs) Now, my second mistake was having chosen to do so at the height of summer, midday at noon. And, of course, as I watched this horseshoe go up, I lost it in the sun. And I thought, bad luck. (laughs) I got very philosophical at that moment, and I thought, I don't know where it's coming down. Straight down, to the right, to the left, in front or behind. Then I thought, you know, for for me to have thrown it perfectly straight up would seem to imply a kind of perfection that I rarely achieve. (laughs) So I'm thinking my best bet is probably just to stay exactly where I was when I threw it and cover my head, which I did. And in time, of course, the horseshoe came down. I felt its wind on my ear and heard it thump right next to me. We're talking this morning about stress. (laughs) And my definition of stress is having a horseshoe hanging over your head. There's been a lot of debate in the academy about really how to identify what stress is. A physician complained in 1951 British Medical Journal, stress, in addition to being itself, was also the cause of itself and the result of itself. (laughs) So really, what is stress? The father of stress research, a Canadian, Hans Selye, once told reporters, well, everyone knows what stress is, but nobody really knows. We all experience it. My definition of stress is an unwelcome loss of control that induces fear, at its heart, is feeling, I'm out of control, and I'm afraid. In 1983, Time magazine declared stress the epidemic of the 80s, and I think it's gotten a little worse since. It was the major cause of America's health problems. 1996, Prevention magazine ran a survey in which 75% acknowledged that they have had great stress one day a week, At work, one in three indicating they feel this way more than twice a week. In 2000, Gallup found that 80% of us feel stress on the job. That's just the ones that have jobs, by the way. 25% felt like screaming or shouting. You know, stress is screaming in your sleep and then realizing that you were already awake. 10% feared someone would get violent. I'm not sure they included the post office in these statistics. But now there's 2008... And you and I need no survey to tell us about stress today. And yet, the Apostle Paul says in the text before us that he has learned how to be content in whatever circumstance. He tells us that there's a secret to this and that he's learned the secret. And you go, I wonder if he's going to tell us what that secret is. But before we look at that question, we need to ask the question, is Paul really qualified? I mean, he's an apostle and we know that God watches over his beloved, you know, and does he really experience much stress in his life? Well, if we read his epistle to the Corinthians, the second Corinthians chapter 11, we read of labors, imprisonments, countless floggings, often near death. Five times, he says, I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things, I'm under daily pressure because of my anxieties for all the churches. Okay, I think that qualifies. That sounds like stress to me. But how do we know his solution, his secret, is authentic, is genuine? I mean, maybe Paul's just saying, you know, no matter what, just rejoice. And it's this kind of plastic. Piety. You know how Christians can be smiling so much, their teeth dry out. I mean, is it is this authentic peace in the midst of the darkest of depths? Well, I appreciate Paul's honesty in this letter. In verse 4, 6, he says, Do not worry about anything. Another translation, be anxious for nothing. And yet he's had the honesty. It tells us if you flip a few pages back, you see in Philippians 2, he goes... Yeah, I wanted to get Epaphroditus back to you as quickly as possible because uh, that way I would reduce my anxiety. See, he's telling us, I was really stressed about this. I was really anxious. I was worried about it, so I sent him back quickly. And he commends Timothy in verse uh, 20 of the same chapter two. Uh, he says, Timothy is a guy who worries about you. A translation that we use, it says concern, but it's the same word. He worries about the Philippians. So Paul... He knows what it means to be stressed and to find authentic peace in the midst of it. This is not theological peace, about which Paul writes Romans five one. He says, "He says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, this is practical peace. This is the experiential peace that is founded upon that theological truth that we have peace with God in Jesus Christ. Well. To answer the question, what is the secret of contentment? The Apostle Paul is going to take us on a journey. He's going to take us to three secret, undisclosed locations. And the first of these locations is the city gate. Look at the first section here, verses 4 through 7. In verse 7, he says, The peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard. If you walked outside the city gates of Philippi, you would find that Philippi was a protected city. We talked about last week. It's Roman citizenship. And there you'd find parked a garrison of Roman soldiers, a detachment right there, ready to threaten anybody that would come wishing to do harm to the city of Philippi. And so Paul says, here's the secret in stress. It's to let God's peace fight for you. Let God's peace Guard your heart and your mind. And the tool that he commends for that, it's not a weapon, not the normal kind of a weapon. It's prayer. It's prayer. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we're reminded of Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul describes the armor of Of a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we are to be clothed in a warrior's clothing. And he concludes that section by saying, Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. Apparently, Mary Queen of Scots said, She fears the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Because prayer is powerful. Sometimes prayer doesn't seem powerful enough, though, does it? Sometimes we confess that we have prayed and prayed and prayed and yet not found the answer that we want. And frankly, Paul doesn't promise the answer that we want in this section. What God promises to us through this word is peace. Peace. Because as we read in the rest of scriptures, there are really two parts to prayer. One part is our asking And you know what, friends, if you don't ask, you don't get. You do have to pray to get an answer to your prayer. God doesn't honor wishful thinking. He honors prayers. But the second part is his will. He gives according to his will. Like any loving parent, though a child would ask for something that might harm him or her, a parent will say, no, I can't give you that. Of course, we don't understand that and drop in a heap of tears to the floor. But prayer requires both the petition and the will of God who knows what is best for us. The peace comes when we delegate to God the anxiety over our circumstances. Because we have said, well, I want this answer. But if you say no, I also want your will more than anything else. In the midst of crisis, we try to grab our own control, but Paul's secret is to give it to God and to acknowledge that his will is best. And so Martin Luther says, Why don't you pray and let God worry? Pray and let God worry. Well, at the gate, we experience peace in prayer. We ask God to act. But there's a second place Paul takes us. He sweeps us away to the marketplace in verse 8. Verses 8 through 9, in this section, we find the key verb, the imperative in verse 9. Keep on doing the things. Doing the things. I'm sorry, uh, before that, is think about these things. So there are two parts. There's a thinking, and that's uh, logizomai from the word logic. And then there's doing the things uh, from a word similar to praxis or practice, to put those things that you think about into practice. But I say the market because this word logitsimai is a marketplace word. It's a word that describes what you see in a market as you come into uh, an open square or a colonnaded forum where people are trading goods and services. There's an exchange of values. And Paul says, think about these things. Really take them into account. Calculate them. Factor them into your understanding. And here he gives us advice. For our perspective. If the first tool for peace is prayer, the second one is perspective. And I want to say two things about your perspective. The first is that you always control your attitude. You always are in control of your attitude. One of the illustrations that stress uh, researchers use is a of, uh, roller coaster. And you see a photo of a roller coaster. You see the person in the front absolutely terrified. The person in the back absolutely thrilled. It has to do with this sense of control that we have. It's very subjective. And this is an opportunity for you. Paul says take advantage of the subjectivity of stress by having a perspective. Epictetus, the Greek uh, Stoic philosopher, says men are disturbed not by things, but by the view which they take of them. And Eleanor Roosevelt, picking up the same thread, she says, nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. Think about that. They may think you're inferior, but you don't have to think you're inferior unless you give permission to that thought. Viktor Frankl, well-known to you, an Australian neurologist and psychologist who spent time in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, wrote this about a people who had been stripped To the barest of humanities, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And then elsewhere, he writes, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. So you're always in control of your attitude. The second thing I want to say about perspective is you're better off with higher expectations, not lower. But Paul says, I want to raise your perspective to anything you see that's true. Look at justice. Justice. Look at what's honorable. Look at what's pleasing and pleasurable, anything that's commendable. Well, this flies in the face of even the, the philosophers of Paul's day. The cynics and the Stoics, like Epictetus would say, well, if you want to be satisfied, the thing to do is really to lower your expectations. You know, expect less out of life, and then you'll never be disappointed. Well, that's hardly inspirational, and that's not the point that Paul makes. And I've got to say, many of us... Uh, the younger generations, we, we swim in waters of irony these days. Have you noticed the level of sarcasm and cynicism? It's kind of this contemporary cynicism. And so if you feel that way, I would advise you to enter into a relationship and conversation with some of the elder members uh, of the church. A college student challenged a senior s- a citizen, saying it was impossible for their generation to understand his. You grew up in a different world, the student said. Today, we have television, jet planes, space travel, nuclear energy, computers. Taking advantage of a pause in the students' litany, the uh, geezer said, You're right. We didn't have those things when we were young, so we invented them. (laughs) What are you doing for your next generation? Hey, the point's not to become self-sufficient. The point here is to become God-sufficient. And so it's not just optimistic uh, thinking that Paul's addressing here. He, he says at the end of this section, he says, keep on doing the things that you've learned and received, heard and seen in me. What are those things? It's the gospel. You've received the good news of Jesus Christ. You've seen them and heard of them in my life as well as I've demonstrated those things. So as you gain perspective, you really start to see, you take the 80,000 foot perspective on life. You see things from God's perspective. You're attempting, you're attempting to, to uh, recognize what is coming out of this that only God could see. Corey Ten Boom, in the Netherlands, uh, she had a hiding place. As you know, she rescued many Jews, uh, survivors uh, fleeing the Holocaust, and she had, uh, as you can still see it today, a framed picture of a crown, symbol of royalty the sovereignty of God. And it was a weaving. She wanted glass on the backside of this framed piece so that you could turn it over and see how messy the back was. And by it, she posts a poem. My life is but a weaving. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Ofttimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper And I, the underside, not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. Shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows he loves. He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who leave the choice to him. So we find at the city gate the tool of prayer. We find in the marketplace the tool of perspective. Paul finally takes us to a third undisclosed location. We see it in verse 18. It's the temple. He uses this language a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is all the language of the temple. Have you ever been to a sacred space? Maybe you feel that way about this place. In the Celtic tradition, when you go into a cathedral, an old church, the whispering silence there seems to speak of eternity. And they call it a thin space. A space that's thin between earth and all of eternity. That's what a temple is. It's a place where we recognize the goodness of God's provision. It's a place where we recognize his grace and coming to make atonement for our sin It's a place of worship. And so what's Paul talking about when he uses this temple language? He's talking about the most sensitive nerve in your body and in mine, and that is your wallet. See that? in, In verse 18, he says, now I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He's talking about financial aid. The Philippians has sent this guy Epaphroditus with a chunk of change, To help Paul. So Paul could speak of their partnership in the gospel. And then Paul sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with this letter. He's likely conveying it to the Philippians. So Paul says, hey, I'm really rejoicing that you gave this money. But he says, I'm not rejoicing because now I've got money I didn't have. No, the the reason I'm rejoicing is that you seem to know with this act of generosity the secret to contentment. He says, I've learned the secret too. How to have a lot, how to have a little, how to be well-fed, how to be hungry. It's a secret to that, isn't it? And it has to do with provision. That's the third tool. To know that our provision is not a matter of our own control, our own resources. But it's a matter of resting in the palm of a loving Heavenly Father. As Jesus says, hey, don't be like the, the Greeks who do not know they have a God. Do you have a Father in heaven who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field? Will he not also provide everything that you need? Delegate your financial woes to him as well. If you don't, if your plan for stress management is to reach out and grab as much financial resource as you can, your peace will rise and fall with the balance on your IRA. Paul says... You have chosen not to live that way, but rather to live in a temple in the presence of a generous God. Who is the one who meets your needs? He will fully satisfy all of your needs according to his riches in the glory. I want to uh, read to you briefly from an application we received this week. And I, I have permission to read this. Do you know that we have a financial counseling ministry here? Uh, Someone applied for this, and one of our members, and she says, I believe in a spiritually holistic approach to personal financial management, believing fundamentally that our relationship with money and materiality is a reflection of our relationship with God, and that this relationship is manifested through our stewardship. For a period in my life, I was in debt and miserable. My life wasn't what I dreamed it to be, even though I was a professing professing Christian and an active member at UPC at the time. I tried to mask over the pain of failed, strained relationships, career frustrations and personal disappointments with material possessions and experiences that I could not afford. I was drowning. But Through God's grace, I learned that spiritual emotional problems cannot be solved by material things. They can only be solved by re-recognizing our Christ-centered identities and living a life of servant leadership. I first had to lead myself out of a mess I created, which I did, and then learned to live by example. I also learned that there is no handbag, no kitchen gadget, no shiny lipstick more soul-lifting than the check you write to make your final payment on an old debt. It's the return of the prodigal son moment to realize we are in the arms of a loving father who cares for us. So at the temple, we recognize God's provision. So there's something better than being in control, isn't there? Our own control, after all, is more myth than reality. We know it, so we live in fear. And sometimes a stress in our lives can call us back to the truth that we belong to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you came across uh, Tony Snow's uh, testimony. I've left it on the floor here. He was President Bush's press secretary who died this summer. But before he did, he wrote a beautiful testimony from which I want to read. He says this, God relishes surprise. We want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see. But God likes to go off road. He provokes us with twists and turns. He places us in predicaments that seem to defy our endurance and comprehension and yet don't. By his love and grace, we persevere. The challenges that make our hearts leap and stomachs churn invariably strengthen our faith and grant measures of wisdom and joy we would not experience otherwise. Picture yourself in a hospital bed. The fog of anesthesia has begun to wear away. A doctor stands at your feet. A loved one holds your hand at the side. It's cancer, the healer announces. The natural reaction is to turn to God and ask him to serve as a cosmic Santa, Dear God, make it all go away. Make everything simpler. But another voice whispers, you have been called. Your quandary has drawn you closer to God, closer to those you love, closer to the issues that matter, and has dragged into insignificance the banal concerns that occupy our normal time. There's another kind of response, although usually short-lived. An inexplicable shudder of excitement as if a clarifying moment of calamity has swept away everything trivial and tinny and placed before us the challenge of important questions. The moment you enter the valley of the shadow of death, things change. You discover that Christianity is not something doughy, passive, pious and soft. Faith may be the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, but it also draws you into a world shorn of fearful caution. The life of belief teems with thrills, boldness, danger, shocks, reversals, triumphs, and epiphanies. Think of Paul traipsing through the known world and contemplating trips to what must have seemed the Antipodes, Spain, shaking the dust from his sandals, worrying not about the morrow, but only about the moment. There's nothing wilder than a life of humble virtue, For it is through selflessness and service that God wrings from our bodies and spirits the most we could ever give, the most we could ever offer, and the most we could ever do. We don't know much, but we know this. No matter where we are, no matter what we do, no matter how bleak or frightening our prospects, each and every one of us, each and every day, lies in the same safe and impregnable place in the hollow of God's hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we rest in the hollow of your hand. Whether we want to own it or not, you love us and care for us. Help us today to offer to tender our resignation as CEO of the universe and to trust in your care. And as we do, may we know the secret of contentment, the very God of peace and the peace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.